I used to nurture bitterness to count up every sight. The world's a moral wilderness, and I have felt its blight. Self-pity ruled, resentment reigned. No one understood my pain. Spiraled down in murky night, insisting that I had the right to hate and hate again. The 23rd Psalm, one that many of you know by heart, uh, but I invite you to stand with me as we read it this morning. Psalm 23, a Psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You may be seated. Last Sunday, we finished up 13 weeks in the book of Deuteronomy. 
13 weeks that I considered to be very heavy when it comes to the content of uh, those messages, the, the heaviness, the weightiness of the call, the constant call of the book of Deuteronomy to obey the commands of God. And as you know is our practice, when we finish a series, I like to preach on a psalm before we begin a new series, and we will do so next Sunday, beginning in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is, a, again, a heavy book, an encouraging book that points us toward the graciousness of God, but, but heavy in the fact that Paul gets on to everybody. And he gets on to his people, and he gets on to people that aren't his people, and he gets on to these people. And, but in all of that, he points them toward the necessity for a relationship with Christ and the necessity of what God did through Christ. But between those two, we come to the 23rd Psalm, one that no doubt you are familiar with, probably the most familiar of all of the Psalms. If you go to a funeral, oftentimes in the funeral program or the memorial information, the 23rd Psalm will be that standard thing that is there. In fact, many of you growing up probably memorized the 23rd Psalm in the King James Version or, or some older version like that and, and knew it from memory and could recite it. But I don't know how often the 23rd Psalm is one that is preached. It is often read because it is a psalm of encouragement. It is a psalm that is designed in many ways to lift us up when we're going through a difficult circumstance. But this psalm is not simply to be read, but it also is very good to be preached. Because it tells us something extraordinary about God and how He has worked in the relationship that we have with Him. It tells us about His characteristics. It tells us about who He is and what He has done and what He is doing. And so it's from that perspective that we look at it this morning in seeking to understand who God is in this psalm. And so this morning we're going to look at two things, primarily two things that we see. In fact, we're going to explore two blessings, two blessings that we have been afforded because we're children of God. This psalm is divided into two parts, and each one talks about a specific blessing that God has given to those who are His children. Two blessings for those who are the children of God. The first, we have been blessed with a shepherd. The children of God have been blessed with a shepherd. He says, begin it from the very beginning, starting off, the Lord is my shepherd. This psalm, we're told, is written by David, who was a shepherd boy who grew into a musician who was also a warrior and becomes king of God's people. But he started out as a shepherd. He started out as the one who was out there tending to the sheep. In fact, we understand that when Samuel comes and he's going to anoint a king, you can find this further back in the Old Testament, First and Second Samuel, read about the things that God does with King David. Samuel goes and he is going to anoint a new king, and it's from the house of this man named Jesse, and so he, he sees Jesse's sons, he's got many of them, and he, he looks at them and he sees several that look like they would be good king material. But each one God rejects. And so eventually, he comes down to there's, there's nobody left, and he's, he's needing, there's obviously going to be somebody, who is it? And so we end up with David, who's out, again, tending the sheep, not one who would even be recognizable as the king, not one who, who Jesse would even think, okay, well, I don't even need to bring him, he's obviously not going to be that one. And yet, that's exactly who God calls. And so David's frame of reference is as a shepherd. And he understands that role, and he understands the importance of that role, because without a shepherd, there will be sheep just wandering around, and, and they will not survive. 
They'll never accomplish their purpose. They're going to be killed by someone. They're going to fall away. They're going to run away to another place. And so he understood the necessity of a shepherd because he had been one himself. And so he uses this term as a shepherd to describe God. Now I think it's interesting because if you think about the God of the universe and all of his glory and all of his majesty, you would think, you know, a shepherd is not exactly the best descriptor. When we come to the New Testament and we're thinking about Christ, we we put on titles like prophet and priest and king. And, And well, we should because the New Testament does just that. But But those are great and powerful titles. Jesus as as king, that is the the highest title you have there. It is the one that explores his majesty and promotes his glory. You have the priest who would stand and, and intercede between God and man. You had the prophet who would bring the word of God to people. So it's very appropriate to put those titles on Jesus. But what a humble position David chooses here to put upon God. A humble position indeed. Shepherds were not well thought of in their society. They were not looked well upon. They were not uh, superstars. They were not celebrities. None of those things were true of shepherds. But that's what he chooses to put on God. Because he understood in his role as shepherd the importance of tending to the sheep. He understood the importance of making sure that they were taken care of. He understood that if he did not do his job well as a shepherd, that his sheep would not, in fact, make it. And so he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He says, I'm a sheep, I'm one who is being tended to, and I know that because the Lord is my shepherd, not someone else, Not someone who doesn't know what they're doing. Not some other God. Not some other person. The Lord is my shepherd. I know that I shall not want. So this first blessing is the Lord as the shepherd. So what does the shepherd do? Well, we need to understand that as Christians, we have the Lord who is our shepherd, and He does these four particular things that we see here in this passage. The first is in verse 2. We have a shepherd who provides. So the children of God have been blessed with a shepherd, and that shepherd is a shepherd who provides. Look in verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. The shepherd is a, a person that gives direction to his sheep. And with the Lord as our shepherd, he is a shepherd that provides. The, the words here, the, the idea here in verse 2 is a shepherd who is leading his sheep to some type of oasis. So everything around is desolate, everything around is, is desert, and, and he finds the place for his sheep where they can thrive, where they can survive, where they can have the things that they need. He provides that for them. So he makes them, he, he literally takes them, By force, if necessary, the shepherd did to his sheep. He's not going to let them run. He's not going to let them go off and do whatever he wants. He takes them to that place that they need to be, that place of provision. He takes them there, and he makes them lie down. The the visual here is that they have so much to eat when they get there. They have so much provided for them that now they're going to lay down, and they're going to take him a rest. He leads them beside the still waters. It's easy for them to drink there. It's easy for them to to find nourishment. The water's not deep. The water's not running fast. It's not a a raging river. It's a still water. It's the place where they can go and have comfort. That's what the Lord has done for His children. That's what He has done as the shepherd. He has provided. It's good for us to know this morning that, that as the children of God, God has provided for us we didn't really do anything we didn't really contribute when you think about the sheep again he's giving this this uh analogy here the sheep don't contribute anything they're not walking along somewhere and the sheep are like oh hey by the way around the corner you know there's a cliff you might fall off oh by the way i think there's a a a lion or a bear up ahead that might eat us they're just 
walking along, oblivious, contributing nothing. And yet the shepherd has great love for his sheep, willing to, in some cases, lay down his life for his sheep. In the case of Christ, most certainly willing to lay down his life for his sheep. And in that he provides. He provides for our needs. He provides for the things that we desire. God cares about us in that role as our shepherd. You know, you think about the other titles that we put onto Christ. Again, prophet and priest and king. Those are not titles that that necessitate a a caring heart, a self-sacrificing heart. But the shepherd is. The shepherd is that person. The shepherd is that title where he's willing to give of himself for another, uh, a group that don't deserve it and do nothing to earn it. So we have a shepherd who provides green pastures, still waters. We need to understand that in our context and in our life, that the Lord provides greatly for us. He's there ready to to meet our needs. He he gives us things far beyond what we can even understand. We we think about our context in the American church and we realize how greatly God has blessed us when in many ways we have not been deserving of it. We've not done anything to earn it. We've not done anything to receive these blessings like we have. We could argue that there are churches in other parts of the world that are far more deserving of God's blessing than we are. That they've worked harder that they've done more. And yet God has chosen to bless us. He has provided for our needs. You know, we think about that. We we think about that even in what we've we've done this morning in our just putting a, a roof on this building. You know, you don't have to go back so many years in the history of our church to see when we had great needs and seemingly no way to meet them. Y'all just voted unanimously to spend $17,000. And we need it. It's, it's obvious. I mean, it's, it's, we're, we're very fortunate. This roof's never leaked. Do you imagine some of the churches in the world who, who couldn't, only in their imagination could they have a meeting like we had this morning and vote to put a new roof on their building? God has blessed us mightily. He has provided for us as a church. At every turn since I have been here, when we have had a need, God has provided that need. Financial and otherwise, it's it's been there. God has taken care of it. Hasn't he done that in your life as well? Look at your life. Look Look at the times when you have had needs. I remember a time not too many years ago where, where Rachel and I got to the point where there was literally zero dollars in all of our bank accounts. And it was a number of days before I would be getting another paycheck. And it was on that day, not the next day, it was on that day when through some quirkiness in the government, God provided for us and it provided, it was years of provision to take care of of that gap. I'm not one of these health and wealth and all that garbage. You can go hear that on television. You're not going to hear it here. But that doesn't diminish the fact that God provides. He provided for me in that situation that I can think of specifically right off the top of my head easily. And you can do the same if you trace through your life. Why does God do that? It's because he has great love toward those who are his children. He has great love toward those who he shepherds over, and he provides for them. The shepherd, as he's leading his flock to these green pastures, and he's doing so, he's leading them beside the still waters. He does that because he has this great affection for his sheep, willing to stand in between them and danger, willing to seek out a place that they can go and have provision because he has great affection for them. And so it goes back to verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So he provides. The the second thing, we have a shepherd who gives life. So look at this in verse 3. He restores my soul. The the language there in the the original 
Hebrew, it, it's this idea of giving life. You know, when you're, when you're hungry, when you're thirsty, when your needs are not being met, and then all of a sudden they are met, so you're led beside the still waters, you're taken down to these green pastures, there's a, a life-giving nature to that fulfillment. When, when God gives you those things, when He provides for you, you see the life-giving nature of the shepherd. If you think about it, it's as if these sheep are wandering along and they're almost to the point of starving to death. They're almost to the point of dying of thirst. And the shepherd finds them this pasture and he takes them to it and puts them in it. He takes them and he leads them beside the still waters where they can get that drink that they desperately need. He's giving them fresh life. He's given them new life because they were at the point of death and He brings them to this place and now they can live again. This is what the shepherd does for us. He gives us life. For we who are in Christ, our situation was much more dire than simply starving to death or dying of thirst. The Bible tells us that we were dead in our sin, but the shepherd came and He gave His life so that we could have our soul restored, as verse 3 says. We could have life again. The shepherd has given his life for you. The shepherd has stood in between you and that thing, sin, that was going to cause us death. In fact, that thing, sin, that we were already dead because of. And as our shepherd, the Lord has stood in between us and death and given us life. In the case of Christ, in the case of Christ, he has laid down his life for us. He dies so that we live. The leading that he takes us, this provision that he gives us, and especially the provision of his life on the cross is that thing that restores our soul. Do we live every day with the recognition that the shepherd has restored our life? That he has restored our soul? Most of the time we just wander through life. We just go in our own direction. We just do our own thing. We just go wherever. But here, David has this recognition that he was in dire circumstances. He was at the point of death, and yet then the Lord leads him to these green pastures. He makes him to lie down in these green pastures. He, he leads him beside the still waters, and in doing so, he restores his soul. He gives him life. Friends, we have life because of the Good Shepherd. We have the physical life that we have because He has created us and made us in His image. And if you know Christ this morning, you have eternal life because He has laid down His life for you. He has made you alive. He's restored your soul. Your soul is lost. Your soul was bound to sin. And He has restored it. And so we have a shepherd who provides and a shepherd who gives life. And then we have a third. We have a shepherd who directs. Look in the second part of verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Sake. We, we still have this image going on of the shepherd and he is, he is now leading his flock and they're, they're going and they're on a path. But the path he is leading them on is not a path to destruction. It's not a path that is going to put them in danger. But it's a good path. It's a path that is right. It is a path that is righteous. And he does it, we're told, for his name's sake. 
If you're a good shepherd, surely you know the routes to take. If you are not a good shepherd and you don't know the routes to take, your flock is probably going to be destroyed, right? You're going to walk them off a cliff. You're going to lead them into a lion's den. You're going to take them to a place where they're all going to get robbed and carried off, whatever it is. But the good shepherd leads the sheep on a righteous path, on a good path, and he does so for his name's sake. He does so because in the end, those who look and say, wow, those sheep have went on the good way. They have went in a good direction. He has brought them here safely. Then who gets the credit? Well, it's not the sheep, right? The sheep are, I mean, they're dumb. They don't, they didn't do it themselves. They'd get themselves eaten. They would get themselves stolen. No, who gets the credit? You, you get the sheep where they're supposed to go. The shepherd gets the credit, right? He does it for his name's sake. So he loves the sheep in the way he tends for them, and then where he leads them is a place where he receives the glory and honor. In the, in the physical sense, it's the place where the, the one who is over the shepherd, the one who has sent the shepherd, he pats the shepherd on the back. He says, well done, shepherd. Well done for what you have done. He, he elevates the shepherd. It's what God does, correct? Jesus leads his sheep for for his name's sake, for his glory, and, and the Father loves the Son. The Father gives glory and honor to the Son for doing a job well done. Do you realize that the Lord desires this morning to give you direction for your life, and it is direction for your own benefit? So often we have it in our mind that the the things that God has said, the direction that God has given us is somehow to oppress us. It's somehow to um, uh, restrict us from doing things that we we really want to do and are really fun. And and we don't like what the Lord has said because those things are are so restrictive and they they cut out the fun that we're going to have and they cut out the excitement in our life. And none of that is true. The Lord has given us direction in our life so that we will go down a good path. So that we will walk in a way of righteousness. Not so that all the fun will be taken out of life and so we can't do anything that we enjoy. In fact, we understand from the Scriptures that every other direction you can go in, every other path is a path that leads to destruction. It's a path that will ruin us. It's a path that separates us from God. But the path that the Lord desires us to go on is a path of righteousness. It's a path of doing what is right. It's a path of doing what is pleasing to God. And is it that, or at least shouldn't that be, for us as believers in Christ, should that not be the most important thing? Is to do what is pleasing to God and not worry about what is pleasing to other people or to ourselves. The path that the Lord, the path that the Good Shepherd leads us on is a path of righteousness. And he does so, not so that we get glory and honor, not so that we are lifted up, not so that people pat us on the back and think we're doing so well. The Lord leads us down a specific path of righteousness in our life for his name's sake only. So sometimes that path of righteousness is going to mean that our name is mud. Sometimes it's going to mean that we get treated like dirt. Sometimes it means that we're not going to have the advantages in our world, that we're going to be looked down upon, that we're going to be treated poorly. Why? Because it's not about lifting up our name. Our name is irrelevant. Our name is unimportant. The name of Our church, unimportant. Us being lifted up as a church, unimportant. Us being prominent in our community, unimportant. What is important is that his name is lifted up. Why? Because what he is doing is for his name's sake. Why? 
Because His name is the only one in the whole Bible that can save. The name of Christ is a powerful name that saves people. The name of First Baptist Iker, the name of Michael Pardue, the name of whatever your name is, does not save anybody. And so God is leading us down a path, and He wants us to follow Him, and we must follow Him. It is imperative that we follow Him, but we must understand that we follow Him for His name's sake. So when we do anything right, when there's any glory for us to receive in this world, our obligation is to deflect that to Christ. Because He has the only name that can save. So we have a shepherd that directs us. And his direction is so good. We don't listen often. We are stubborn, hard-headed sheep. We want to do it our own way. Never mind, this cliff is right here. We're just going to go jump off it. It won't be a big deal. We'll land on our feet, right? Because we're like cats instead of sheep. We'll, we'll, no. No, you'll break every bone in your body. And the shepherd has to come and pick you back up and nurse you back to health. Or... He has to take you and put you down because you broke every bone in your body and you can't survive anymore. And so then you're done. You see how that works? Listen to the shepherd because he directs. And then the, the fourth thing we know about the shepherd, we have a shepherd who comforts. Even though, he says, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. It says, even though I get to this point, this end point of my life where I am going to die, I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I, I, I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear because you are with me. I have nothing to fear because your rod and your staff, they comfort me. We have a Lord, we have a shepherd who comforts us. He's there in that time of great need. He is there when we are in constant desperation. As I was reading and preparing for this message, I came across multiple authors, multiple commentators, to when they got to that point of your rod and your staff. We, we often, I've heard this preach, I've probably said this, you know, you're, you're the, we have a, one is for correction and one is for comfort. And the commentator said, you know, there's nothing in this whole passage that is about correction. There's nothing harsh here. Everything is positive toward the Lord. So even the rod and staff, which could at times be used for correction, they could at times be used to pull back the sheep from danger. They're both instruments of comfort. Both to give us comfort in those difficult and dark times. Those times when we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that's what the shepherd does. Think about, again, those other roles of prophet and priest and king. Does the king come and comfort you in time of difficulty? The prophet? You ever read the prophets? There wasn't a lot of comfort in the words of the prophet. The priest, was that his job to come and pat you on the back? To come and show you? effect? No. It's the shepherd. It's the shepherd that shows comfort. It's one of the reasons when we come to the New Testament and we talk about pastoral ministry, we do not talk about pastoral ministry typically in the roles of king, definitely not of king, sometimes of prophet and rarely as priest. Why? Because it's, it's talked about as, as a shepherd. Pastoral ministry is talked about in the role of the shepherd. The one who comes in, and yes, there is that pulling back and there is that correction that can happen, but comfort is a huge place in the life of the shepherd. Friends, when you're going through difficult circumstances, some of you right now are. Some of you are going through difficulties that you haven't even shared with anyone else. They're only known to you. Remember that they're also known by the shepherd and that he is there to give you comfort, that, that He is not simply there to correct you and He's not even simply there to give you direction and to, to send you where you need to go and to lead you and to provide for you, but He's there for your comfort. 
even to the point, even to the point of the worst of all of it, going through the valley of the shadow of death. Let's not misuse, let's not fail to use that role, that, that great gift that we have from the shepherd. He is a comforter. So those four things are things that we know about a shepherd. We have a shepherd who provides, a shepherd who gives life, a shepherd who directs, and one who comforts. But then the last two verses of this psalm make a transition, if you will. We, we read them all together, and it should be because it's one psalm. It's one psalm that is meant to be put together. But he, he has two different ideas here in describing the Lord. The first is that of the shepherd. But then the second one we see here we need to know this morning that the children of God are blessed with a dwelling place. So the first is a shepherd. The children of God are blessed with a shepherd. But the second is the children of God are blessed with a dwelling place. We have a place that we reside in Christ. A place where we can reside with Him. A place that He has brought us into. A place that He has made for us. And in that place, He takes care of us. So He says in verse 5, You prepare a table before Me in the presence of My enemies. You anoint My head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow Me all the days of My life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's contrasting ideas here. We're not simply talking about eternity. One of the things we have to be careful of is to not project everything that we're told about God as an eternal promise. Our relationship with God is something that is going on now. It's not something that is simply reserved for the future. And so if we try to take all of these things and we push them off as the promises for the future, well, what do we have now? I, I, I really honestly think some Christians live like, okay, you, you become saved, you are saved, God saves you and then you just kind of exist, and then you die, and that's when all the good stuff starts. As if the good stuff doesn't start now. As if the blessings don't start now. As if that relationship with God doesn't start now. So let's not push all of these blessings off here into the future, but let's think about them now. We've been brought into this dwelling place. Well, what is it? We see three things about this dwelling place. First, it is a dwelling place of safety. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a feast for me, if you want to translate table that way. You prepare a feast for me. It's in the presence of my enemies. And when you read that, you think, okay, you're, you're, you're resolving some type of conflict. But I don't think that's what David has in mind here. I don't think David has in mind here that the Lord is resolving the conflict he has with his enemies, and so now they're able all to sit down and, and eat together and have a nice meal. Because he doesn't say that. It's in the presence of his enemy. So in other words, God begins blessing David here. He begins blessing the one who is singing this song. He is blessing them to the point of he has this great feast, and his enemies can see it, but they can't do anything about it. That's why I'm calling this here a dwelling place of safety. It's because God is blessing so abundantly the one who is His child that He can have a feast set up where His enemies can see what is going on. It would be the perfect time to attack, the perfect time to come up against David because here he is having this grand feast. He's not thinking about protecting himself, but God has made it such that he has this feast in the presence of his enemies and they can't do anything about it. God provides such protection and safety for David. David, you can have this feast wherever you want to. You can go set up outside your enemy's camp and have this feast and they can't do anything about it. Because remember, David had a lot of enemies. David had enemies from other countries. David had enemies within his own country that wanted him destroyed. And so the last thing you would do if you were fearful, and you find this in the Psalms many times, when David is fearful for his life, the last thing you would want to do in a time when you're fearful is set up and have a feast in front of your enemies. You wouldn't prepare a table. You wouldn't prepare a large meal 
with your enemies present, with them being able to see what you're doing, because that would be the time to attack. But David said, I don't, I don't prepare this feast in the presence of my enemies, but rather, God, you prepare this feast. You prepare it, you prepare my heart, you prepare my table in front of my enemies. And friends, this has a lot of implications for us today. It's a dwelling place of safety because God is protecting us. But what he's telling us is when he blesses us, when he works in our life, and even our enemies see it, it's going to be done, again, going back to what we saw a few verses ago, it's going to be done to bring him glory and honor and praise. That he's going to provide for us, that he's going to keep us safe in this dwelling place, and it's going to be a place where even when our enemies look on, God is taking care of us. We often are so concerned about what the world sees, not from the standpoint of, of we want to live righteously so the world will see it. That would be great if we were worried about that, but, but we're concerned that the world might think we're odd, they might think we're dumb, they might think we're ignorant, whatever it is. Because we follow the Lord. We claim the name of Christ, and to the world, that's just foolishness. It's always been foolishness. It was foolishness when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, because he says that plainly. The world looks at the cross, they look at Christ, and they believe it to be foolish. We need to understand that when God has called us to himself, he has provided us with the protection that we need to live in the world that we're in. And so we can go through our life being faithful to Christ and not concerned about the world around us, not concerned about our enemies, not concerned about what they're doing, not concerned about what they think about us, because we have been led and covered by the Lord. And that should be sufficient for us. We have a dwelling place of safety. The second thing there, the last part of verse 5, we have a dwelling place of abundance. Look what he says, You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. This place God has called us to in His presence, in a relationship with Him, this dwelling place that we have in Christ, is a place of abundance. We have more than we need. You say, well, preacher, that, that's not always the case. I mean, I don't always have more than I need. Sometimes I just scrape to get by. I'm not talking about your stuff here. Don't, don't, don't read that into here. Don't miss that. It's not about your stuff. It's about the fact that the Lord has given you more than you need to live because He has given you His presence. He has given you a relationship with Him. He has called you to Himself. He has called you His child. And that is more than you need. That's an abundance. It's far more than we could ever hope for. It's far more than we deserve. It's far more than anything we could ever earn trying to get there on our own. So it is therefore an abundance. And I think we would do well to sometimes step back, step back from our lives and take a look and realize that we've got more than we need. I think sometimes we get in this, this mindset where we're worried about accumulating more stuff and, and more wealth and having more things. And, and we need to step back sometimes and realize that God has given us abundantly more than we deserve. He's given us abundantly more than we could even handle. And in fact, I would say He's given us abundantly more than we even come close to enjoying. We so often do not claim the blessings of Christ. We so often do not become um, who we should be in Christ and enjoy the abundance of His favor that He's placed on our life by calling us into a relationship with His Son. We do not do that. We miss it. We are so busy pursuing this, that, and the other, so busy pursuing all the things that the world tells us is important that we miss enjoying the abundance that we have in the dwelling place of God. Friends, that's not only in the life to come. 
Yes, in the life to come, in eternity with God in heaven, eternity with Christ, we will have abundantly more than we do now. We will enjoy the fullness of His grace forever. We will enjoy the fullness of His presence forever. But don't miss that now. Don't be so consumed with the things that the world tells you are important to where you miss the abundance of the the goodness of God now. That you miss the fact that you get to live your life today as one of His children. And that He loves you enough that He sent Christ to die for you. Don't miss that now pursuing everything in the world. Don't miss that now thinking that'll be important to me later on. He has given you an abundance now. So that's the second thing. We have safety. We have a dwelling place of an abundance. And then finally, we have a dwelling place that is eternal. So while it is important now, it's also going to be important later. We don't trade off the two. So many people, so many Christians that I have known in my life either really focus on now, and not always in a good way, or the only thing they do when they focus on God is to focus on eternity. And I don't care this morning if you're 10 or if you're almost 100. Don't just focus on one or the other. You've got to focus on both. Because we do have a dwelling place that is eternal. Look at the end, what he says. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So look at this. It's it's an eternal thing, and it's called up, both of them, in this last verse. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me when? Now, all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever when in eternity. He, he has both in mind here that this, this dwelling place of God is an eternal place. And eternity starts now. This dwelling place, this place where we are with God, this place that God has called us to in this relationship with Him is a, a place where now goodness and mercy follow me all the days of my life. Is that true? Do you believe that this morning? You say, well, sometimes I have bad days. Yeah, but are goodness and mercy going to follow you all the days of your life? If you're in Christ, yeah. The things that happen, God is working them out for good because you're with Him. You know the God of goodness and mercy. He's with you always, regardless of where you are, regardless of what you're doing. He is there. He is with you. And it's followed by the promise that we will dwell in the house of the Lord when? Forever. It will never be taken away from you. If you are in Christ this morning, the promise that you have is an eternal promise. No one is ever going to snatch you out of the Lord's hand. That includes even when you refuse to obey God and rebel against Him. You go do your thing. Guess what? He doesn't just let go of you because you did something dumb. I'm amazed. People read that verse. They look at that verse about about no one taking us out of God's love. Those passages where, where God just talks about the security that we have in Him. And they think that they're not included in that. As if, okay, yeah, the, the devil can't take me away and my mama can't pull me out of the love of the Lord, but, but I can do it myself. You know, I can pry myself out of His hands if I choose to do so. As if someone who follows Christ would have that in their mind to pry themselves out of Christ's hands. The eternal nature of God is such that we will be with Him forever. We will always be with Him. We will always be in His house if we are in Christ. No matter what comes at us in this life, no matter how we leave this life and go into the next one, we will always be with Christ. The house you live in, trailer, double-wide, apartment, condo, house, whatever. Your 
earthly dwelling place? Is it eternal? My parents were renovating their kitchen. I went over there to help them yesterday morning. They needed to tear a cabinet off the wall. It has hung there since the 1950s. Sturdy built wood cabinet, put up well. I took it down with a hammer. A hammer, and then I just grabbed that thing and ripped it off the wall. It was sturdy. It was well built. But it came down. It's not permanent. They're going to put up new cabinets and new flooring. It's going to look very nice. Guess what? It's not forever. They give you a lifetime warranty. The, the guy told me they're giving us lifetime warranty on these shingles. And I thought, well, whose lifetime? You know, Is it really forever? And we can come back close to the apocalypse and get this thing reshingled at a discount? I mean, is that how it's going to work? No, they're going to prorate it, right? Why? They're not going to last forever. It doesn't. The stuff here is not permanent. It's not going to last forever. One day, everyone in this room will all be dead and gone. We won't be here. Kids, grandkids, great-grandkids, they might still be around. But guess what? A lot of them, they won't know your name. They won't be willing to pay $99 for Ancestry.com to find out who you were. They just won't be that big a deal to them. You see how this works? But what do we spend all of our time doing? We spend all of our time pursuing the things for right now. You spend all your time on your house. Guess what? It won't be there forever. You won't own it forever, even if it stands for a long time. I love people that spend all their money on cars that aren't old cars. Because it's really ironic, and sorry if you do this, but you know when you drive that thing off the car lot, like the value plummets? You know, you buy an old car and the value might go up. But you buy a new car, and yet, guess what? That first payment of like $450 a month, okay, that was the first payment the day you drove it off the lot. The next month, it's worth less, but guess what? They want you to make the same payment. And then when you do that for 60 to 72 months, 72 months, that's six years. That car is going to be worth nothing when you get done paying it off. Sorry to disappoint you. I, I know you knew that already. You've got some other motives. But think about that. Every, every day you get up and you work several days a month to pay for that car to get you to work and to do the things you need to do. You've got to have good transportation. I go out pretty often and mine won't crank, so I understand the niceness of having a new car that will crank. That's why I own five, so I can just get another one until I can get the other one to crank up. But do you realize you go to work several days a month to pay for that car that's losing value every time you get in it and drive it to work? Why do I say that? So you don't go buy new cars? No, it's not anything to do with that. It's because when we put everything into now, to working for now, we miss it. We miss the good news that we don't have to work for now. We miss the good news that comes from Christ that now is not all there is. See, the people in the world who are lost this morning, they're working for their car and their house and their dreams because that's all there is for them. That's all they got. They're figuring they're going to live a few years and they're going to die and that's it. So they got everything's got to be about now because that's all there is. But friends, you and I know that there is something greater. There's an eternity that is greater that has already started for us if we're in Christ. And so our goal is not to be known now, to have everything now, to live for now. Our goal is for what is to come. And the psalmist understands this when he says, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, even when my enemies come against me, even when my son in David's case turns against me, even when people want me dead, even when people betray me. 
Goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. But most importantly, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Regardless of what comes at me in this life, regardless of anything, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. Not because I'm king in David's case, not because I've, I've got this great wealth, but because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This morning I want to challenge you to do two things as we, as we close. One is rejoice because you have this great shepherd and you have this great dwelling place. So rejoice. Be excited about that in your daily life. When you wake up in the morning and it's going to be the crummiest day, and tomorrow's Monday, and Monday is not always great. Now, tomorrow's a holiday on a Monday, so it's a bit of an exception. But the next Monday will roll around and you won't like it. But Tuesday, when you've got to get up and go back to work after a three-day weekend, and you're like, man, this would have been a great 10-day weekend, but you don't get that. You only got a three. Remember that the Good Shepherd loves you and that He gave His life for you. Remember that He promises you that you will be with Him forever. So even if Tuesday, the world falls apart, it won't for you. Because your world is directed by the good shepherd who leads you in paths of righteousness for his name's sake and will have you with him forever in his house. Rejoice. That's the first challenge. The second challenge is this. Tell other people about the shepherd. Don't keep it to yourself. Maybe you're at the point in, in kind of your spiritual formation where you're struggling to, to follow the shepherd yourself. You're struggling to, to be really um, impacted by the shepherd and led by the shepherd. I, I understand that. Don't, don't let that become something that causes you to neglect telling others about him. Do that this week. You know, next Sunday, we're fall kickoff. We're getting back to church. It's, it's the holiday stuff's over. The summer's over. Everybody's back to their routine. Isn't it a good time? You know, things have calmed down. Even where you work, people are gone during the summer. A lot of your school teachers, you're back. Tell somebody about the shepherd. Not, not just, don't, I'm not saying, hey, go tell people about our church. Go, go get people to come to fall kickoff. Let's have high attendance next time. You didn't hear me say any of those things. Tell somebody about the shepherd. If you tell someone about Jesus and he saves their heart, you don't have a problem getting them to come to church. You know why you have a problem getting people to come to church? Because they're lost. You say, well, they were baptized and they grew up because they're lost. Lost people don't like to go to church. Saved people go to church. It's plain and simple. Saved people go to church. That's the way it is. The Bible says if you're, if you're not, you're living in sin, you're neglecting the fellowship, whatever. That's why, let's not invite people to go. Let's invite people to know the shepherd. Let's invite people to know Christ. Rejoice in the shepherd and invite people to know him. That's your challenge for the week. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for the love that you have shown us in Christ. We thank you for the grace and mercy that we have because you have loved us in a mighty way. God, I pray that you would work in our heart this morning. God, that you would lead and guide us as our good shepherd. That you would remind us often of the love and sacrifice you have made. Lord God, we, have, we thank you so much that we have a place to dwell with you. That we have grace and peace. Lord God, lead us. Lead us as we go from this place. Lead us to be... God, lead us to be sensitive to the way you're leading us. God, lead us to have a heart that is open to hear from you. God, we praise you this morning for all that you're doing in our heart. We praise you for all that you're going to do. And we ask this morning in Christ's precious name. Amen. I want to invite you to stand with me as we sing this final song this morning.
I want to invite you to just cry out to God where you're at or come to the front. Cry out that He would, he would help you in, in, in your daily life to, to see those places where you can rejoice. Rejoice in what He's done. Rejoice in His goodness toward you. Now we'd also cry out that we would have those opportunities to point others toward our Savior, our Shepherd. That's our calling if we're in Christ. To go and to make disciples of all nations. We, we, we do that by, by sharing with other people about who the shepherd is and what he has done for them. That, he, that he's come and given his life. I want to encourage you as you go this week to find those opportunities to do that. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, I, I just ask you to respond in whatever way he leads you as we sing this song together. Mm.